Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my guest today is uh, editor-in-chief of the Daily La Repubblica, a prominent expert on the international affairs, author of more than 20 books, the latest being The Return of Empires. Maurizio Molinari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Nice to be with you. We are uh, talking on the day of Festa della Liberazione, the day that Italy has been freed from the, uh, from the fascist regime. And uh, I cannot uh, but... Uh, Hint to this occasion, your newspaper wrote, I think, three days ago, that the vice president of the Italian Senate said that there is no mention of anti-fascist in the constitution, Italian constitution. We had recently the Minister of Agriculture, Francesco Lodobrigida, uh, saying that uh, uh, there should be no ethnic replacements in Italy. There is the prime minister who has some, uh, uh, well, let's say, uh, youth fascist uh, inspiration. I just wanted to ask you, how do you feel as a citizen of Italy with all these figures being playing the major role in the in Italian politics? Uh, with a sense of history, the liberation happened 78 years ago. And basically, most of the people decided it was uh, enough with the occupation and enough with uh, fascism uh, that decided to side with Hitler in, in this country. And since then, um, the new republic was born on that collective choice. With one exception, the very few that after the end of the war had a kind of nostalgia for Mussolini, his people, his crowd, and the Repubblica di Salò that was uh, born in 1943 and was the republic that Mussolini created to side with Hitler until the very uh, last moment. Uh, this group at the beginning was very small, very isolated. Uh, they did uh, create uh, a, a, a new party uh, whose name was uh, Movimento Sociale Italiano, and the leader of this party, whose name was uh, uh, Giorgio Mirante, uh, always defined himself as a personal leader of the West, strongly anti-communist, but always confirmed this origin, this nostalgia, this link with uh, Repubblica di Salò. Now, what is happening today? that uh, a party that was born a few years ago, Fratelli d'Italia, whose leader is the present time Prime Minister, Miss Meloni, has in its symbol the same flame that was the symbol of Movimento Sociale Italiano. So basically they are the continuation of that small party, with the difference that at the last election they took the biggest amount of votes by the Italian public. This is why history is coming back to us in a way that uh, Miss Meloni also is strongly pro-West, pro-NATO, pro-US, but uh, inside her party, the narrative lacks the topic of anti-fascism for the simple reason that they don't recognize 
the choice that was made 78 years ago by the majority of the Italian repudiating Mussolini. This is why it may be a contradiction, actually it is, but we are living, in, we are living inside this historical contradiction. Do you think that it has implications for the current politics, the the past of the the past of the Miss Meloni and and her party, this uh, attitude towards uh, migrants, or for internal Italian politics, or is it some kind of identity issue they cannot deal with, but it is all in in in, in history? What's your take? This is this is a great question. Uh, apparently, the answer may seem to be no, because the main topic is Ukraine in foreign policy for this country as for others. And on this topic, she is uh, Ms. Meloni. She is strongly uh, for the sanction to, against Russia, of, to send weapons to Ukraine, uh, to support the U.S. administration and the European and most of the European countries that are strongly supporting Ukraine. So in this frame, Italy still is in the right position. Uh, where, but in reality, there are some differences that are very, very, very important. Uh, where are the differences? Are about the idea of the role that the national state has to have in the frame of the European Union. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a French historian and journalist, Bernard Guetta, wrote a great book about sovereignism. Um, it, it was a kind of uh, reportage in three countries, Poland, Hungary, and Italy, uh, describing why these three former countries that were part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, we are facing sovereignism today. What sovereignism has in common in these three countries? This is the question that he posed in his book. And the answer is the idea that the ethnical roots of the country are more important than the European identity. Now, this is exactly what uh, the Northern League is all about. And this is, that is one of the parties in the coalition of Miss Meloni. And this is exactly what Fratelli d'Italia is all about. For them, the idea of national identity, uh, the idea of to be an Italian patriot, it's more important than to be a European citizen. And here lies the main difference from with the previous government of, uh, of Mr. Draghi and also with the political tradition that we had in Italy since the end of the Second World War. We have been part of government um, political seasons led by different leaders from the center-right, from the center-left, but the in common had this European horizon, that they wanted Italy to be part mostly and foremost of the European building, to build a stronger Europe. Now with Miss Meloni, this post-fascist heritage 
is bringing her to re-evaluate the, the Italian national identity. And this is the main difference, and this explains why Italy is having more and more problems in relations with Brussels, and I can foresee that is also bringing more and more problem inside the European Union. It is very interesting what you're saying, especially that uh, when I feel think about the well, the spirit of Risorgimento, this civic nationalism, which was very liberal and European at the same time, the spirit. It seems that uh, well, raising the ethnic issues within Italy can threaten the existence of republic as, as, as a whole, right? The, 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 the country, consistency of the country as a whole. So I think it's also very dangerous, not just for European project, but also for the kind of Italian identity as a, as a nation state, as a republic. Mm, do, you, do you think that, uh, because Meloni has been, I think, widely praised by her kind of pro-Western approach, uh, do you see that it is something that can change once the... Uh, Angle would move from a focus on the on the war and, and and efforts to support Ukraine into more internal affairs. For example, such as uh, getting rid of veto in the foreign affairs uh, um, voting inside EU or other uh, internal European affairs. How how is Italy positioning uh, uh, herself in, in, on on those issues? This is the one of the. Um frame one of the topic where you see Italy uh, distancing herself uh, from the biggest debate that in this moment we have in Europe. The debate is basically in which direction the European Union has to grow and how the European Union has to become to be larger, more efficient, uh, the debate in this moment is between two positions. We have France on one hand and Germany on the other hand. Uh, Germany is envisioning a greater Europe uh, with um, the same institutions, but the same kind of institutions, also the power of veto, but with more and more countries, especially in, in the East and the Balkans. While France is envisioning an idea that is comes from Mitterrand, based on all um, different circles, uh, where every circle has a different grade of um, role in uh, uh, respecting the basic rule of the European Union, it's it's a, it's an institution fascinating, an institutional debate. But both these ideas in common have. At the point of arrival, that is that the European Union will, will have a stronger sovereignty. This is the topic, the European sovereignty. At the end of the story, at the end of this debate, the European sovereignty will be strengthened, will be stronger than now. Now, if you listen to what Ms. Meloni says, and also her minister, he, or they never speak about European sovereignty, or they speak against the European sovereignty. For instance, during her electoral campaign, more and more, the topic was sovereignty to the patriot, means to the Italians, or to the French, or to the Spanish, and not to Europe. And this explains why Italy is taking with Ms. Meloni a different, a different track. 
detract that is more um, adherental with the ideology, with the idea, with the horizon of the conservative bloc inside uh, the European Parliament, a bloc that the conservative one that envisioned a loser European confederation where the states will have back some of their national uh, sovereignty powers and will take these powers away from the European Union. So basically what they have in mind, and when I say they, I mean all the leaders that are inside the conservative bloc uh, at the European Parliament, starting uh, with the Fratelli d'Italia, is uh, to create a weaker union, not a stronger one. So that's why uh, if we try to look beyond the Ukrainian war, it's very difficult in this moment, but we have to try. There, the clash between the conservative parties and the traditional popular and socialist and Green Party is going to be very tough. Mm, it's, it's a fascinating discussion about Italy, and I see a lot of links, unfortunately, to, to the situation of Poland, which is has this sort of government. Uh, for quite some time already, but um, I could not uh, use the opportunity to move slightly to the different direction, uh, which is the Middle East, the one of, of your areas of expertise. Um, we we see recently that um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu decided to pause the overhaul of Israel judiciary after a massive protests. Um, perhaps we will have to wait until um, until mid May. The, the next parliamentary session, but how do you think? Uh, do you think that after this protest, is there the way forward with those uh, those reforms, let's say, or anti-reforms that he had in mind? And if they, if he succeeds at some point, does it mean that Israel would follow the Polish-Hungarian uh, way into sort of anti-liberal uh, democracy, or or not even perhaps democracy, or definitely not? Uh, not the one that has checks and balances. How do you see? How do you see the, this big picture for for, for Israel um, uh, for, for moving forward with this reform? Uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu to move the judicial reform uh, ahead is going to be very difficult. And the question mark that I have is if he really wants to do it. If we remember, we go back to the electoral campaign and also to the statements that he gave immediately after the victory, the judicial reform was not there. So this is something that he put on the table after the creation of the government. I believe that the reason is that he wanted to give something to the extreme right, thanks to which he won the election. The new extreme right in Israel, it's very, very extreme, more than usual, is represented by these two new leaders, Ben-Gvir and Shmotrich, that were actually created by the same Netanyahu, because during the campaign he invited them in his house in Caesarea and told them, you know, uh, alone you will not get anything in terms of seats. But if you go together, if you gather together, and we will support you with the support of Likud, you will get at least four seats. And four was the number that Netanyahu had in mind to reach the majority to uh, over the threshold of 60 
seats in the Knesset. In reality, they got 14, not four. And from that moment, they were the key ally for him. So he had to give them something big because they became, uh, as a big surprise even for him, the main partner for his coalition to build the, to hold the coalition itself. The problem that in this way he made a huge mistake for the simple reason that the elaboration, the description, the details of the reform uh, did outrage the vast majority of the Israelis that are more than the number of just went down the street to protest. Why? Because there were some details inside the judicial reform, especially the possibility for the parliament to overthrow a sentence by the Supreme Court that go against the rules of Montesquieu in a liberal democracy. Now, if Netanyahu is a cynical leader, has a lot of experience, the long, the, the, he has the record of long-standing Israeli prime minister in his country, so in reality, it's that he, if he could, I believe, he would throw away not only the judicial reform, but also the two very uh, uncomfortable allies. The problem is that he cannot do this, because if he does it, the government will follow. So what will be the, uh, outcome, the, the, the only reasonable outcome? Or a strong pressure by the U.S., uh, to force him on a track to keep the government, but with some other ally inside, or his personal decision to frozen the reform and not to speak anymore about it. Otherwise, we are going to have a new election in Israel. Well, Israel well suffered a lot of this uh, back and forth elections in the in the, in the recent uh, well years already. I think this is something to be avoided. But uh, one of those concessions that you mentioned perhaps could be the the forming of the of the national guard by Mr. Ben Gvir. It has raised a lot of uh, concerns for in, inside and outside Israel. Do you think that it is possible that those concessions will have to involve uh, that, that that could for example, be this sort of National Guard or other areas which could be uh, possibly uh, raise concerns uh, for the kind of more liberal, progressive Israelis when this reform will, will stall? Do, do, do you think that in other areas this potential for um, violating the basic kind of constitutional uh, rights is, is possible in, in Israel if, if U.S. pressure will be not enough to, to stop uh, Netanyahu and his, uh, well, far-right uh, coalition partners? You see, Israeli politics uh, is very, uh, has a lot of similarities with Italian politics, uh, in a sense that um, you have many characters that play different roles on different topics, and they at the end, they may agree or disagree as well. Uh, so what I believe is that the topic of the National Guard that could never uh, take place, I mean, will never be created for the simple reason that the security establishment in Israel is such, the, I mean, is, is the Israeli deep state uh, will never allow a civilian to have his own uh, uh, civil uh, militia. This is against the basic rule of the security establishment. So why? why Netanyahu threw this argument in the middle of the Israeli agora. 
because like in the bazaar, he needs another chip to bargain with the extreme right. But this is confirming what I was telling you before, that the real strategic problem that he has is that he has an extreme right that is too strong for him. So he has to find a solution to this problem. Otherwise, he, his government is doomed to collapse. And speaking of security, the, there is a spiral of violence now in, in, in Israel. I think more than 40 uh, Israelis have been killed, about 200 Palestinians have been killed since the beginning of the, of the year. Do you think that having this far right within the government, the kind of crisis within the states and the, this violence uh, on, this, on, the, on the streets, do you think that Netanyahu will be able to solve those, all these crises simultaneously? And especially, I think, about not going into the, another intifada or, or another confrontation uh, with, with Palestinians. Do you think he, he's able to stop it with the government as he has right now? or to contain this crisis without uh, kind of uh, making it even worse. Uh, that would require actually the change of government, uh, which would have a different political stance on, on Israeli, on Palestinian-Israeli conflict. How do you, how do you see this, this, this violence issue moving forward? If you take a step back and you see the origin of this violence, you see that the main actors so the roots of this anti-Israeli violence are Hamas in Gaza, Hamas in the West Bank, new Palestinian organ uh, armed organization in southern Lebanon, and it's Bola, both in Lebanon and in Syria. What they have in common, all these organizations, are their links with Tehran, with Iran. The reality is that we are facing a new kind of strategy by the uh, new leader of the Pasdaran, the successor of um, Soleimani. Uh, Soleimani that was uh, killed by the Americans during the last year of the Obama of the Trump administration in, in Iraq was the first one that suggested to Khamenei um, the idea of a regional war against Israel using all the tools that Iran may have. And now he was eliminated, but he was the, the, the man that for the first time has this Weltan, new Weltanschauung, so that, there was, that Iran had not to have a direct fight with Israel, not only, uh, not just using the Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, but all the tools. Now his successor, that was a man that was working with him a lot, is following this path and is trying to use all the tools that they have, that basically are proxy uh, military organization uh, in, uh, among the Palestinians and in Lebanon and in Syria, to open a different front of different kind of attrition against the state of Israel. This is the new challenge, the new security challenge that the government of Israel, led by Netanyahu or anybody else, will have to face. And it's not going to be easy because, you know, the history of Middle East is telling us that all the military challenges that Israel is facing generation after generation are always very much different and they push Israel to change its strategy of defense. 
you, um, you, you, you mentioned Iran, and I think it's, it's absolutely crucial to uh, perhaps end our, um, our discussion and about this broader picture of the Middle East. We had recently the um, Chinese blessing on the Saudi Arabia-Iran uh, rapprochement. And uh, well, in the meantime, Israel has been building a um, better relationship with the Sunni powers. Uh, there is the crucial role played by the uh, UAE. Um, it's, it seems that with a constant withdrawal, everyone is talking about withdrawal of US, perhaps it hasn't happened yet completely, but we can see it for quite some time. The Syria is sort of coming back uh, to, the, to the picture. There are elections in Turkey and we, we don't know the result. Perhaps it's, it's an optimistic sign. I wanted to ask you, uh, well, especially with regard to this uh, Iran-Saudi Arabia agreements, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of at the very early stages, but do you see that the kind of the, the map of Middle East is changing again and that we will uh, see a different sort of relationships and regional alliances that we used, got used to in the, in, the, in the recent years? How do you see this kind of strategic uh, future of the, of, the, of the Middle East at, the, at this moment? Absolutely, yes, you are right. And your question is, is perfect in describing uh, the two main factors that are changing the strategic map of the Middle East. The first one is the decision by China uh, to change its involvement in the region from um, just economic to also political and strategic. Uh, this is the meaning of the negotiation that they held between the Saudis and uh, an Iranian that uh, brought them to reconcile their uh, uh, diplomatic ties. And the meaning of this agreement is much more than we can imagine, because the decision that President Xi took was to bring them both to Beijing, to do the negotiations in Beijing, and in reality to impose, as far as we understand, them the agreement. How the Chinese did this? Using the only real power that every Middle Eastern actor by ages always recognized, the power of money. He put on the table so much money, first with the Saudis and secondly with the Iranians, that both of them couldn't say no. So he obtained, it's a different method from what, for instance, the US or before them, the French and the British were doing, completely different one. And it's fascinating that they succeeded so fast. Basically, the, the, we know that the Saudi Arabia has a, a, very, um, a, a very challenging horizon in terms of economic transformation. And China put on the table the full support of the Chinese economy to Saudi Arabia. From that moment on, the negotiation was finished because the Saudis said yes. The Iranians are in much difficult situation, so they couldn't say no. The deal was done. So was the economic power of China exercised in the name of Chinese interests that brought them together? And what Beijing did a couple of weeks after the agreement was reached, they said, look, Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Abu Mazen, you know what? We may also try to help you to find a compromise of a final solution to the historical conflict between Israelis and Palestinians 
in that part of the world that is lasting for more than a century. And we have to take them very seriously. And if if, if I were the, the, the American president, I would take this uh, aim of the Chinese very, very, very seriously. So this is the big, the new big thing that we have in the Middle East. A China that wants to be part of the region in a positive way, but with new rules that are their rules. They are not trying to put them together, things like President Clinton was doing in Camp David, you know, uh, the middle ground between Barak and Arafat, uh, uh, this piece of land in exchange for land for peace, all these details about identity. No. The, 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 the main track are the interests of China. And China is bringing all the actors along them. Uh, will they succeed in the long run? Who knows? But they are trying. They are the new actor in town. Everyone is looking at them. And so this is the new big fact, the number one. The second one, as you rightly suggested, uh, are the new relations between Israelis and the Sunni uh, world. Uh, because in the sunny field we have Turkey, we don't know how the elections will go, but in reality also Erdogan is opening up, he's opening up to Egypt, he did with South to Saudi Arabia, the topic of the Muslim Brotherhood is no more there. So we see uh, the two traditional fields inside the sunny world, uh, in favor and against the Muslim Brotherhood, gathering together. And this is helping Israel uh, in finding a common ground with both of, of them. Will this bring to involve also, include also uh, the Saudis in the Abrams Accord? It's a great question mark because we know that the Saudis are asking today, are telling to the Israelis, yes, we may join, but you have to do the final deal with the Palestinians. And this is the topic that I believe Israelis and Saudis are still discussing. And if I may do a guess, but this is just my personal speculation, inside this dialogue, conversation between Israelis and Saudis, there is also the fate of Haram al-Sharif, or Arabite, uh, as you want to call it, uh, for the simple reason that if we try to imagine that the Waqf, the religious authority that is ruling the Haram al-Sharif since 1967, moving from uh, responding to Haman, the Jordanian king, to responding to Riyadh, the Saudi king, we may try to envision the kind of change that may really happen. Mr. Moinari, it's absolutely fascinating when I listen to your synthesis and this big power game seems almost simple, accessible <laughs> uh, to people who don't have your expertise. And thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today in the, the Liberal Europe podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.